It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. The world of flies is so amazing and varied. In our gardens alone, there are pollinating flies, flies that eat aphids, and others that live in our compost bins and recycle plant material and other organic matter. But did you know that flies are also incredibly important to garden ecosystems and provide food for an enormous range of species further up the food chain? Flies really are the unsung heroes of the planet. Hello, I'm Kate Bradbury, and today I'm talking to Dr Erica McAllister, Senior Curator of Diptera at the Natural History Museum. She's the author of two fascinating books on flies, which open up the world of these good-looking, feisty and downright amazing creatures. You may have heard her on the radio chatting about the wonderful world of flies, but if you haven't, you're in for a treat. I met her at the NEP rewilding site in West Sussex, where storks and beavers rub shoulders with wild-ranged longhorn cattle and Tamworth pigs. She was there collecting flies, obviously. So I started by asking her, what is a fly? Okay, so flies, we have a common name for flies. Uh, what they really are is diptera, diptera. And di is two and terra is wings, so they're two-winged insects. Now, um, we call a lot of other things flies, dragonflies, horseflies, houseflies, scorpionflies, mayflies. Some of those are flies and some aren't. But, uh, for example, houseflies and horseflies are dragonflies they're not dragons or flies um snake flies are not snakes or flies so we i try and stick away from the common names just for that sort of thing now flies as adults always have two pairs of wings sanctorial mouth parts and a pair of halters which are their balancing organs now i've just told you that they always have that and that's an absolute lie straight away because <laughs> some don't have wings some don't have wings or halters, and some don't feed as adults. But the basic body plan is that. One pair of wings, one pair of halters, and suctorial mouth parts. So you can't actually be bitten by a fly. That's reassuring. That's reassuring. Yeah. And why are flies important? Where do we start? When it comes to ecosystem services, flies are there. They're some of the most critically important animals on our planet. 
Um, just in terms of diversity, abundance, richness, they're important. When it comes to ecological roles, they are really important. We know most of the ones that we associate with are the decomposers. They're the recyclers, they're the hipsters, you know, they're, they're getting in there. But they're also really important predators, so they get rid of a lot of our pests. They're parasitoids and parasites, and they control, naturally control population levels, which is really good keeping nature in balance. But then you've also got the pollinators, and we think about the other groups as the pollinators. The flies, they are so in it. They love it. They get pollen all over themselves. Half the families are have pollinators within them. And would you say that pollinating flies are more efficient at pollinating than pollinating bees and, and wasps? Depends. It really depends. If you've got some truly um, species-specific ones, they're absolutely critical. So what this is what we do. We try and lump everything together by saying, you know, this bee is great, but sometimes that bee is great just for one flower. And so you need this you need this whole matrix of these different species going on. The honeybee is a generalist. It's quite aggressive, but it's got a short tongue. So you need a lot of long-tongue creatures. And a lot of flies have, such as the bee fly, they have long tongues. So they're able to get into these long tubular plants. Bee flies are amazing, aren't they? Because they fly around in about March and April and they have and they stick their tongues out. They can't roll them in, can they? No. And they sort of they hover about and they have this really long, they're really easy to spot. Really long, uh, once described as a fluffy flying narwhal. Oh. And and once you've heard that, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what you're looking at. And they're absolutely amazing. I always say that they 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 acknowledge the breaking of spring. They're the ones who are like, woohoo, <laughs> it's time to get up now and enjoy the environment. Uh, this, that's Bombylius major, but you get different species throughout the year. But yeah, they're, they're long proboscis, which they can enlarge, which is amazing to see. But um, unlike the butterflies and moths, they can't curl this up. There's some that have co-evolved with some very old plants in South Africa. And bless them, these little flies, they may be two centimetres long, but they have mouth parts six centimetres long. Wow. I mean, so how that, do they get around? They, they basically, they, the mouth part um, gets flipped underneath. Oh. And they fly along <laughs> out the back of them. I did um, waste <laughs> quite a bit of field work laughing at them. <laughs> But that's evolution for you. It's absolutely amazing. It's amazing. So what's the difference then between a fly proboscis and a bee proboscis? Bees have tongues. Okay, so there's much more lapping, whereas it's still suctorial, but it's not quite the same mechanism. And at the end of the bee uh, fly's mouth part, um, they've generally got this tiny bit which is full of pseudotrachea, which is, so the trachea, um, these channels, which the liquid goes up. And it's kind of like, you would think about houseflies with their fleshy mouth parts. Mm -hmm. A lot of the hoverflies have tiny little fleshy mouth parts at the end. Hmm. And so that's what they use to kind of lap up. So is it like a sponge? Yes, very hmm. small sponge. A sponge rather than a straw? Uh, yeah, so mosquitoes have more of a straw. Um, and they're, again, nectar feeders as well. So only the females require blood at a certain time of year. Mm -hmm. She's just being a mother. We can't have a go at her for that. And at the rest of the time, she and the males are all vegetarian. So they're nectar feeding, so they have little straws. But they do still have some sort of um, slight spongy bit at the end. Okay. Where do flies fit into our gardens? everywhere the thing about flies is that every part of the life cycle is doing something because example what do baby bees do 
nothing. <laughs> they stay at home. They're looked after by all their aunties. They're just fed and watered and cleaned. Baby flies are basically thrown out from birth. They're neglected and off they go to work. And this, this, the larval stage is the is the feeding stage. Mm. Okay, this is where they are assimilating. And they're recycling in a lot of their cases. So, for example, we've got a lot of rat-tailed maggots in your garden. Yes. I love a rat-tailed. I love a rat-tailed maggot. But a lot of gardeners don't like a rat-tailed maggot. They don't know what it is. Well, this is daft because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonder of mechanical uh, marvel as well. Because it, you, they, they bum-breathe, which may, uh, which may <laughs> they sound... They breathe out of their bums? Yes, which makes sense because if you want to feed... Don't do this, but try like eating without breathing. It's really difficult. <laughs> so they just basically go, do you know what? We're not going to breathe there. Right. So they can just eat continuously. Plus, they're often in very anoxic environments. So decomposing compost, the the margins of ponds and things like that, very low oxygen content anyway. So they have these long spiracles, these anal spiracles, that enables them to reach the surface so they can breathe from the air. Like a snorkel. Yeah. It is a very long snorkel. And so they're not it's not a tail then, really. No, not at all. So they're 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 snorkel maggots. Yes. So yeah, and, and another they have um another way of saying this um long tailed larvae, which again has a tail in. But I think mm. you might as well call them rat tailed maggots. I like the name rat tailed maggot. And of course rat tailed maggots turn into absolutely beautiful hoverflies, don't absolutely. they? Absolutely. So there's two um, tribes. Um, with the most dominant one being the Aristolani, and those are the ones you know as the, the drone hoverflies, big chunky hoverflies, and the Batman hoverfly. Batman hoverfly is my favourite hoverfly. Isn't it cute? And it's, it's great. So, And it's a really nice one because this is one anyone can identify because it's just got a bat on its thorax. It really <laughs> is like, oh yeah, I see why they've called it that. Oh, so they're, they're really good. So the, the larval stage are decomposers, the adult stage are pollinators. So they have this dual use. So yeah. I love that analogy. The bees are lazy and the flies are very hardworking. <laughs> and then there's a third thing that you can add to their life cycle with some of the hoverflies. They have massive migrators. There's some brilliant work that's come out of Plymouth looking at the long migration that some of these do. Some flies migrate across the whole of Europe to get to the UK each spring. Wow. Exactly. And everyone talks about all these amazing migrations of birds and it's like, hold on a minute. There's this <laughs> tiny little fly going, it's all right, I can do it. And these <laughs> these include like the um, Episurphus boltiatus, the marmalade hoverfly, hoverfly, and the Upioides. And four billion turn up each year in the UK. Wow. So not only are they pollinating as they go, they're enabling gene dispersal. So they're transferring huge amounts of pollen around. So just imagine all these relic plant populations. These are generalist pollinators. They're able to spread pollen around. So they're little conservators. They are out there trying to help save our planet as well. Wow. And when they turn up, their larvae are a bit more hardcore. They have got basically larval units of biological warfare. Because their little larvae are what we call aphidophagus. They eat aphids. And that many hoverflies, it's estimated, can eat about six trillion aphids. So, so many hoverflies are so good for gardeners because yeah. they eat aphids. Exactly. And how many aphids does one hoverfly larvae So one eat? of those would consume between four and 600, 400 and 600 aphids 
Before it pupates. Before it pupates. That's incredible. And they look really, they do look like bird feces. So it's like, what is that? What what I find really funky about them is that when they when they're feeding and they're like, ah, stuff in the faces. They they you know, <laughs> it's brilliant to watch. But they will lift the aphids up in the air because the aphids will release a distress pheromone. But it goes over the top <laughs> of all the other aphids. So you can see all the aphids going, oh, what's Susie doing? Oh, no, she's waving us, having a great time. Oh, she's gone. <laughs> That's vicious. I know. <laughs> Nature's not pretty, but it's ever so much fun. <laughs> so we've got these other flies. They're pollinators. They're uh, recyclers. Um, some of them are aphid eaters. And then when they migrate, of course, as well, they provide, and you don't want to hear this, do you, Erica, but they provide food for yeah. the swifts. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so we're hanging around with bird people a week and they're like, look at these marvellous swifts. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> Eating all my babies. Do they go? But that's again, this is one thing we've got to think about food webs. So, a lot of animals, especially in the insects and flies that we don't like, mosquitoes, actually, their larvae are critical in terms of uh, biomass, in terms of food mm. for a lot of the wildfowl. Mm. So, we, you know, we, when we start mucking around with all these different systems, we really truly have a knock on effect on everything else. So what can gardeners do to increase numbers of flies generally in their gardens then? Um, and don't say leave dead bodies everywhere. Oh, no, but that would be great. But um, no, um, I, I keep getting told off for that. <laughs> uh, one thing I say, which everyone is getting onto, is the do less. Mm. Um, I, I really think a little bit of untidiness is exactly what we need. Um, I want more local plants. I think we, we've got to stop importing lots of plants because actually they, they haven't co-evolved with our species. And that's a really important point, isn't it? Native plants have been growing alongside these insects for the last 12,000 years. Exactly. And, and, you know, we need to help them. But what we need to also think about, because most people think about insects in the adult stage, is the larval stage. So have a pond. So put in a pond, because that's where, with a lot of insects, they have aquatic larvae. So we need to encourage that in. Uh, uh, plant pots, old plant pots, clay pots, loads of little insects hide around that. Compost, they love it. Oh, they love the compost, don't they? Who doesn't? There's this brilliant group of flies called cicodids, they're owl midges. And I they, love an owl midge. They look like little furry caped superheroes <laughs> and they kind of walk around panicking all the time, like they've left the gas on. You know, they're just like, ah, ah, this little skittish movement that they have. And they're beautiful, incredibly hirsute little individuals. They are lovely. And, and they, they really, they're tiny, but they, they, they look so gorgeous when you look at them up close. And their larvae look like they're little sausages wearing rubber rings, oh. like they're swimming around the compost, having the best summer holiday oh. ever. I once mulched um, my lemon tree with some very fresh compost. And then obviously in October, when it started to get cold, I, I brought my orange tree into the conservatory and all of the alt midges that were in the compost pupated, uh, well, uh, hatched out, and suddenly my conservatory was absolutely <laughs> packed with almidges. And I was quite excited by them, um, but my partner at the time wasn't very, wasn't very happy, and See, I, I had to evict them. That was then that partner. So keep the almidges. <laughs> keep that's, the almidges. That's how you kind of decide relationships, because <laughs> um, my partners had to put up with all sorts of stuff. My poor uh, builder, when we had the kitchen done, he built it round the spider in the kitchen. Oh! <laughs> At first he was like, I'm not doing this. And then afterwards, like, it's all right, she's still here. And I was like, yep, I've got a win there. 
Oh, I mean, I'm surprised you like spiders though, because they eat flies. Oh yeah, but we've got three species of fly here that eat spiders. Okay. So I quite like that. <laughs> All spirit, love and war. <laughs> and that's the lovely thing about flies is everyone goes, what about this? And I'm like, aha, uh-huh. there's loads of flies that will force, you know, you to change your mind. We've got seven, over 7,000 species in the UK. That's amazing. It is an awful lot. So go on then, let's try and change the mind of listeners on mosquitoes. Because when I tell people, when I suggest people put in a pond, one of the first things people say is, oh, but I don't want to get mosquitoes. Yeah, so we've got um, 33, 34 species of mosquito in the UK. Okay, and they've been around for a long time. There's one or two that will be what we call nuisance biters, uh, Culex pipiens and Culoceta annulata. She's a lovely big beast. <laughs> Stripy legs. She looks formidable. Um, and the rest are absolutely fine. And we need those because we need them as pollinators. So what plants do mosquitoes pollinate? All sorts. Um, they are better at pollinators in colder situations. They're really, they're only them and one moth pollinate an orchid. Oh. Um, so found in the Arctic tundra. Wow. So when it comes to those systems, mosquitoes are really important. Uh, larvae, their biomass is absolutely essential. The abundance of the mosquito larvae. So, yeah, so their biomass is really important. It's critical in, in food webs. Just the sheer ri- uh, abundance of them. So they're really good. Plus, um, I'm quite inspired. I'm quite interested in bio-inspired technology. It's how we look at nature. And, you know, evolution has been doing its thing for a millennia or many, many millennia. And it's now we've started to look at how these creatures interact with each other. And we started to think about how we can develop our own methods of doing things. And one of them is looking at how mosquito mouth parts work. Because the bit that people hate is, obviously, is the being sucked by a female and but medics have thought about this and gone hold on how come we actually don't know this is happening till after the event so Ah. the actual and it's only when the histamine reacts with us that we know something's happened it's not the insertion of the mouth parts or anything like that it is the reaction of their histamine with us so they're looking at developing needles that yes. you can't... That's genius. Yes, because they're able to penetrate our skin at like 400 times less force than if you would just stab through with their mouth part. They basically have a pneumatic drill. So she would just basically vibrate on the surface to be able to penetrate. That's amazing. I know. And then they can manipulate them under the skin, which fascinates me. Maybe not other people when it's happening. <laughs> So I sit there in the garden watching it going, I know what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) And so underneath, they've got little sensors at the end of their mouth parts and they're able to sniff out your capillaries. Yeah, so they're sniffing out your blood capillaries, but they're able to manipulate their mouth parts around. And that's not done by muscle. That's all hydrostatic pressure. Again, take these smart needles and you'll suddenly be able to do very invasive surgery around very delicate body parts. And people won't notice. Yeah. That's amazing. And this is the whole thing. It's like we we spend so much time, we sit in our gardens and we just don't look. And that's why I love insects. Is I was little and I fell out of trees. So I often lie and concussed on the ground. <laughs> Wasn't quite that bad, but you know what I mean. But I used to spend hours just watching all the different things interacting with each other. And people go abroad for all these safaris and they want to see the big five. And it's like in your garden... You can see thousands of animals interacting. 
you you paint this really beautiful picture of, of of flies interacting with each other of sort of you know breaking down our waste and that's a really important thing as well isn't it that the recyclers they break down our waste we think they're a bit disgusting you know the the blowflies is it the blowflies yeah but they have to be some of the cleanest animals on the planet because they are dealing with our waste so you sit there and you watch them clean themselves. Oh. Everyone thinks they're plotting. You know, they're sitting there rubbing their legs together. But they are actually cleaning their sensory organs all the time, their eyes and everything. And how... So if, if, if a fox does its business in the garden, should we clear it away? Should we leave it for the flies? Um, I'm, I'm all about leaving things. I, I, you know, if there's a dead animal in the garden... Leave it because it's absolutely <laughs> genuinely fascinating to watch the succession of animals that come along and convert this dead matter into something else, which I love. And how long does that take? Depends. Um, I, I once had a, a schoolboy who, with his dad, they came to a science evening at the museum, and I was telling him about this. And then a year later or something like that, I got an email go, My son's just won his school project. Because we bought a dead chicken from the supermarket, you know, like, yeah. And then we put it in a cage in the garden and we put an iPhone next to it and we did a time lapse of the decomposition. Oh my goodness. And within a week it had gone. <gasps> but he said it was absolutely fascinating watching the decompositional process. Wow. And this is really good. This is, you know, it's getting all those nutrients back in. It's, it's, it's nature. And we have this glamorized like ideal of what nature should be or all prancing bunnies and all that and it's not really it's, it's a bit of death and mayhem always heading towards chaos am i convincing people to like flies i think so <laughs> so here's one for the gardeners what about flies that eat plant material like yeah. your crane flies and your oh very few of those do i get it there's some tipulids and they will eat the roots of grasses we're not going to be having grasses much longer, so maybe that one will resolve itself. I don't know. Um, I have to say, you've got to look at a crane fly larvae, though, because they're, they're little spiracles on their bottom, which they breathe out of. They look like perfect little faces. Oh. I know. So maybe change your attitude. I don't know. But um, there are some obvious um, things like root flies, carrot root flies and those sort of things. So to fritters that may be agricultural pests. But interestingly, people forgive butterflies their larval stage, which are equally herbivorous and very destructive to most gardens. Yes. Well, they don't forgive the cabbage whites. They're very unforgiving of the cabbage whites. And the rest of them, they're like, oh, it's all right. Wow. I'm like, no. No, no. one minds nettles being eaten, do they? No, oh, but I love a nettle. <laughs> <laughs> my um, vegetable plot in my garden... I do a lot of hand picking mm. and then I also move like these little larvae onto my plants to watch them consume. Um, do you mean the aphid hover? Yeah, the aphidophagus larvae. But then I'm also seeing my sweet corn got totally munched and I'm like, yeah, that's one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> so what fly, what fly ate your sweet corn? So these are root fly maggots and things like that. Ah. So they're in the base. But I would be really concerned about soil fertility. And, and what we're doing with our soils, we really need to pay attention to our soils as well. And also because there's so many insects living in soils, so many invertebrates. So again, dipter larvae are some of the most dominant organisms in there. And they're really important. Um, they do all sorts of things in the soil. So you've got the predators, 
you've got, um, they decompose this and whatever. So we think about the earthworms recycling, rejourning. Well, we've got a lot of larvae doing exactly the same thing. So we've got to make sure we have a healthy soil system as well, which we seem to be failing at the moment. So some flies predate slugs, is that mm. correct? There's a whole family of slugs and snail killers. So tell us about the slugs and snail killers. Well, full stop, they're really attractive flies. <laughs> they um, they kind of look like a little bit like Darth Vader. They've got that kind of loopy head. I always think they turn up going, I am here <laughs> to consume you. And um, Which obviously in my head, lots of insects do funny voices. But they, um, they're wonderful. A lot of them are patterned, really sharp features, everything about them. But their larvae are parasitoids. Now, not all of them do this, uh, but the majority, enough do it for the whole group to be called, yeah, the snail-keeling family. And yeah, they would do that. They would go in there and their larvae would consume. So do they lay eggs in the slugs and snails? Yep, all the eggs nearby and the larvae hatch and crawl into them. It does depend on what species they are. And some of these we actually use for biological control. Right. So, for example, um, we, we took a load of flies from, I believe, Norway to Hawaii wow. on a plane, which still makes me giggle. You see a fly going, we, we can do this, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they took him over there because there was an introduced snail that brought with it a fluke. Uh-huh. So they were like, okay, and they tried these flies out on all the indigenous endemic snails, and they were like, not interested. They just wanted the invasive one. So it's very. it was a good method of like looking what naturally does something. So they... So they in, so they introduced the fly to get rid of the invasive snail, yeah. which was carrying a fluke. And remind us what a fluke is. So they're internal parasites and they can do quite a bit of damage. To humans? Yes. And and the host animal, cow, pig, etc. Ah. So in our gardens, we've got slug and snail killers that are flies. Yeah. There's loads of species. I've caught loads of this today. They're just lovely. So this is the thing. Nature has methods naturally for controlling an environment. Everything, you know, you the ebb and flow of nature and that if we keep us in balance, it's all very good. And urban gardens make up a huge percentage of the land use in the UK. Like when we take out agriculture and people don't think of urban gardens as really important. And that's absolute nonsense. <laughs> um, we've got an urban garden community next door to where I live and I've been monitoring the insects there for a year and a half and it's just great seeing what is locally found in South London. It's amazing isn't it when you actually look. So how many species have you got? Loads and what we've got really interestingly because weirdly people aren't looking at flies in the same way. I I don't know why. (laughs) I find that very strange but weirdly we're turning up loads of like new records to London. Which is lovely. And it means all the community are like, oh, well, we've got a really rare fungus gnat. I know they really haven't got a clue what it is. But they're very excited about it. And I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> so, so it's been really good method of getting everyone involved. And considering a lot of these people have not got a garden, mm-hmm. have never been involved with a garden, it's just so good to show them that they're all contributing, they're all helping. So how does it make you feel then, Erica, when you see an article that says how to go to fungus gnats? It, it does annoy me because, again, we lump everything in one thing. So everyone says all flies are disgusting. It's like, eh. And it's saying that all fungus gnats are bad. There's one or two species that can explode in agricultural s- systems um, and 
maybe be a vector, but these are very rare. Um, at most, they're a nuisance. And the idea of us just getting rid of species because they're a nuisance really upsets me. Mm. Let's get rid of wasps. Let's get rid of flies and things like that. No, because actually, we're the nuisance. We've invaded their habitat. They've been around a lot longer than us. And the things that they are, for example, if they're spreading disease and things like that, it's because we leave such waste around. Humans are filthy. <laughs> and we are. And we stink. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, Kate, I don't mean to be horrible, but yeah, you absolutely reek. And <laughs> flies love it. And they come from everywhere. And that's like really good. And they don't understand home ownership. No, you know, it's it's a bit hard for them to understand that concept. So I really want us to learn before we go in to kill. And I never want people to go in to kill. I want us to stop and think, hold on a minute. What's going on here first? Let's have a look. Is there a way maybe I can, if you don't want them inside the house, let's move them outside the house. But what are they doing around? Let's start looking at them properly. And nowadays we have, thanks to social media, on all these sorts of things, it is so easy to find out so much more about what's living in our gardens. So what I've noticed in my house, you know how summer you get flies coming in and they just go around in circles and they never seem to want to go out of the window. What I've noticed, and it's not true of all the flies, but some of the flies, they just go from one end of the room to the other. So as long as there's a window open at either end of the room, they will always leave the room. So I never have to actively catch flies which is almost impossible I never swap flies I just open both windows on either side of the room or either side of the house if I don't have a window on either side of the room and they just fly one way to the other way and then they leave is that true or is that just me yeah no uh, also you've got to think about how flies see their vision is completely different to us they see in UVA UVB and UVC we can't see those first. So what, what so does that mean? What that means colors? that glass is not as transparent as you think it is. Ah. Plus, they will leave lots of signatures on glass, and so they taste with their feet. So they taste with their feet, so they're picking up all these uh, signatures left behind by other flies, communicating what's going on. Plus, the inside of the house is warm. Ah. So it's, it smells inviting, okay, <laughs> We're back to your personal habits. <laughs> it smells inviting. There's lots of things telling it it's fine. It's protective. It's warm. And it doesn't see the window in the same way. So when people are going, oh, God, why can't they just fly out the window? Why should they fly out the window? That's the whole thing. They're in a warm, protective environment. And it's you've got to also remember, this is what I want people to think. That's a wild animal roaming around your living room. You've got to think about it differently. It's like... <laughs> Oh my gosh, millennia, those flies, the house flies, maybe 36 million years to evolve. Wow. 36 million years old. This creature whose mechanics is flying. Like, I can't even get off the sofa <laughs> in a graceful manner. <laughs> These things can, like, invert themselves, land upside down. You know, they can, they can roll, they can yawn, they can, do, they can fly slightly backwards. I mean, how amazing is it that this animal has chosen your room to fly around in. <laughs> they are quite buzzy and annoying there when you're trying to get to sleep. Oh, I quite like it. Again, my partner and I disagree <laughs> on this one. But I just, especially when they get really angry, and it's not getting angry, it's just when they're trying to do something and they vibrate their wings really fast. 
it just reminds me of people going, oh, it's like when I have my head in a sweep net and there's a lot of things that I won't be collecting for and I won't collect the bumblebees and they just walk down my head and they push themselves out of the net and they vibrate their wings ever faster and you can hear them go, it's just like, they're like, oh my God, get out, Erica. And I'm like, sorry. Yeah. But I always get upset when the fly, I find dead flies up on the windowsill. It, it seems like to my human brain that they were trying to get out, they couldn't get out, and then they starved to death and died. Uh, yeah, so they will, I mean, they, some will try and get out. And, uh, you know, they're trying to find, because the windows, again, they're not privately sealed, so they will be able to know that there's some air coming through. And you generally find them in the corners. Mm. Yeah, but the adult stage is often short-lived. That's what we forget as well. It's the larval stage that's generally the longer part of it. Uh, the adult stage, they have ooh, two duties to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, once they've done that, well, it doesn't really matter. So that's mate and lay eggs, those two duties? Um, well, I would say reproduction and dispersal. Right. So, yeah. so, they, so they fly somewhere new and then they Yeah, fly to a different habitat. And that's the great thing about flies is that you don't have niche competition between the adults and the larvae. Baby bees, and this is why that in many ways they're more impacted by neonics and things like that. Is it the so adults? These are neonicotinoid pesticides. Yeah. The adults and the larvae are eating the same thing. Right. Whereas in flies, you've often got the larvae are in aquatic ecosystems and the adults are, you know, terrestrial, they're flying around. But saying that, then you could have a double whammy with the streams and surface runoff impacting on the larvae. And then pesticides impacting on the adults. So, so pesticides are really bad for flies. <laughs> yes, it's in their name. <laughs> yeah, not very good at all. But there's some, there's some amazing projects coming out now of how we can, again, use uh, native predators and native pollinators to come in. And we're really beginning to look at this sort of chemical, you know, subtlety going on nowadays. Rather than blanket killing things and doing like that, we are looking at individuals and thinking how we can encourage our more beneficial insects in. Mm. So in your wonderful book, The Secret Life of Flies, you tell us how adaptable flies are um, and it, it, how amazing they are at adapting to various situations. They can live um, in the sea, seawater. They can yeah. live in the furthest parts of the Arctic and the Antarctic. They can live in virtually every, virtually seemingly inhospitable habitat in the world there's a fly that can live there i know how then what does this mean for climate change do you think flies will be able to adapt enough to changing climates some yes some absolutely no um some of these are so specialist in their niches that we get rid of that they're gone there's an endemic fly in scotland only found in the cool links of scotland and this was threatened by a golf course. So if that golf course had been built, that species would have been wiped out. So that's land use change. But with, with climate change, on, so land use change is the biggest driver for species loss. Climate change has a massive impact. Um, but it used to be that if, say, there was a drought or a flood or a heat wave, as what we're experiencing now, um, the insects would be able to escape into little pockets where they'll be able to help themselves, you know, ride out the storm, as it were. Mm. But with land use change, they've now no longer got these areas that are able to be, uh, you know, hiding. Or populations that have been like multiple populations, if one gets wiped out, 
then the other population can move back into that area after this event has happened. So there was always enough individuals for a recovery. Mm. But what land use chase, climate change, increased urbanization, insecticides, um, light pollution, just layer upon layer upon layer. The insects are like, hold on a minute, we're finding it harder and harder to fight here. So it is, it is a massive problem. And is there anything that we can do? I mean, obviously, you know, we need to end fossil fuel industry. We need lots we need of to things sort we need to do. Our, ourselves. We really need to think about our priorities and what's important. We have one planet. And I, I, I'm, I hate being overly dramatic about this, but I think it's got to the point where actually I'm genuinely, genuinely concerned that if we don't really start organising ourselves, we are going to lose... No, the planet will stay and many species will stay, but I'm quite intrinsically selfish. And I would quite like our species to say it's not earning the right to at the moment. But I think it really needs to kind of pull up its little socks and sort itself out. And we need to learn again how to be within our environment. We've had a society in the UK that has seen itself in many ways so separate from our living environment. We, You just look on the shelves of supermarkets and it's kill this, kill that, whatever. And the language is so, oh my God, just think about what you're doing. You're advocating that we wipe out other species. And really, is that is that how we should be living? Or should we think about how do we control it so that we don't have to wipe out? There's some, there's some balance that we could form with a lot of species that we think are quite negative. So I really think we've got to change how we... We live completely within this systems. And I'm not saying, oh, we have to go back and live in caves. I hear many dramatic people like, that's what you're advocating. It's not at all what I'm advocating. I'm advocating we learn more about the environment we're in. And actually, bio-inspired technology is probably our way forward. Learning more about the plants and the animals is learning how we can survive better, not worse. I'm not sure whether we've communicated correctly previously. I'm not sure us naturalists, scientists, gardeners, everyone have properly communicated what is important. And I think we need to be a more cohesive unit and say, actually, what is important is this planet and let's work around to help look after it. So we're here at NEP. So NEP is, um, for those who don't know, is an amazing rewilding site um, set on the grounds of NEP Castle um, where everything has just been left to its own devices. They've reintroduced beavers, they've reintroduced storks, they've got long-hauled cattle, they've got um, Tamworth pigs, which all live wild and 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 work the land as, as close to what it would have been managed um, in the olden days. Um, and it's doing absolutely fantastic things. But in our gardens, I mean, you know, you've talked about letting things be wilder. You've talked about using native plants. I mean, just generally being kinder and being more thoughtful about the other species we share our gardens yeah. with. Is there anything else we can do? Uh, one thing we can all do is become citizen scientists. So we have in the UK a really long history of um, understanding our environment. In fact, we're probably the most described country in the world. Um, we're about 95% described. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing, but there's a lot of flies still to get, probably. But, and this is because of recording schemes, natural history museums, 
and citizen science projects. And it's the latter that's coming to the fore nowadays. So we can go into our garden, and we could take really decent photos on our phones. Then you can go on to iRecord or iNaturalist, or you could join a recording group. So yeah, within the, the Diptera alone, there are loads of recording groups. So, you know, there's the obvious one for the hoverflies, which is great, huge numbers of people every day recording the hoverflies in their garden. And this is so useful because we can see when the adults emerge, how long their season is, we can look at them at host plants, all of this. Huge amounts of data, which is so important. And in fact, we've used the hoverfly recording scheme data to look at the impact of climate change. So it's one of those that we've been able to look. It's got long-term records. Add that to all the data they've mined from natural history collections up and down the UK. And we have got a really important data set. So I know this is a really hard question, but I'm asking all of oh, my... I know what you're going to ask. I'm asking all of my contributors, oh. what is your favourite fly and why? I hate this question so much. <laughs> I'm sure this is like what parents must feel. Who's your favourite child? I can't possibly have a favourite child, knowing deep down there is one. And, um, <laughs> um, thanks, Mum. Okay, well, obviously, uh, Bobilius Major is high up there, the bee fly, because it's just adorable and cute. Um, but probably with me, it has to have slightly more edge than that. So it will be... I know it's such an obvious one. I feel so cliche. It's going to be a Scyllus crabroniformis. What's the common name of that? That's the hornet robber fly. Oh, the robber fly. Yeah, because I do love a venomous creature. Um, <laughs> you know, who doesn't? So what does the, what does the hornet robber fly do? Um, so this is um, found in southern England. It's, it is moving slightly now, it's dispersal. And it's associated with dung. Um, we, we're not quite sure. This is how bad it is. This is a protected species in the UK. We really don't know that much about its larvae. Uh, they're in and around um, dung. So we're hoping for them to turn up one day at NEP. They haven't yet. Um, but the adults are these orange, brown, black creatures. They're about, I don't know, three centimetres. Amazing. And, um, and the females have moustaches as well. And she is highly venomous. Um, not to us, although she can stab her mouth part in if she's really annoyed. So the first time I held one, definitely had to take a little bit of Dutch courage because you're like, oh my God, this can things hurt. But they are just the most amazing predators. They can catch dragonflies on the wing. They can <gasps> do all sorts of things. And we don't think about little flies being apex predators. You know, you see all those wonderful natural history units, the predators, and there's me in the background screaming, oi! You have left out all the insects. Come on, we need these. So, and they're they're in the UK. They're they're big creatures. They're majestic, and it's just so much fun to watch them hunting. They've got the best eyes, huge bulbous eyes. Everything about them, I think, is wonderful. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time.